While you're still standing, grab your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we continue in our study of the book of Titus, a smaller part of a bigger study of the pastoral epistles. We've gone through 1 Timothy, now in Titus, we will conclude, the Lord willing, with 2 Timothy one of these days. And... uh, This passage that's before us that we're going to read here in just a few moments could be be one of the most important theological passages in the New Testament. I know that thrills you when you hear the word theological. What I mean by that is that it gives us some wonderful theology, the words of God, that's all that word means, about Jesus Christ. I'm always amazed that as we go through books of the Bible and we come to seasons like the one that is before us about the birth of Christ, uh, it's fitting that we work through this particular passage of Scripture which speaks of His appearing. And so for several weeks we will consider this passage. Uh, I'll make a little tweak on the notes because we're not going to get out of that first line on your outline today. We're going to be talking about the grace of God appearing. So listen and carefully read along with me, if you will, silently while I read aloud. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It has burst on the scene, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. This is the second appearing now of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Father, I am so grateful that I have the privilege of being able to bring your word today. What a What a privilege it is. It's an opportunity to share with your people some very, very important realities about your grace. And Lord, your your grace is so vast, it's expansive, and and were we to, to spend eternity, we could never exhaust all of the wonders of your grace. But I pray that as we walk through this today, that you would give us some wisdom and understanding, and more than just a, a, a mental, intellectual understanding, but a heart uh, apprehension of what you mean when you talk about the grace of God and what it means to us, those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, and what it could mean today for those who don't know Jesus personally yet. So I pray now that you would Guard us and guide us by the power of your Spirit as we walk through your Word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let's look at this phrase in verse 11. For the grace of God, the first word needs to catch your attention. For the grace of God. He doesn't just start with the grace of God. He says for, which indicates that he's pointing back to what he has just said in the first ten verses. He's pointing back to what we have spent a little bit of time, a fair amount of time, going through, talking about those Christians who have, by the way, received God's grace, and what they need to look like in the family, and in the church, and in the workplace. In other words, pointing back to the reality that in all of life, Everything that we do, say and think, ultimately, Christian, should be based on the grace of God. Now, let me just say this because it's very, very important. I'll, I'll hammer on this. I have in the past, without apology, and I will in the future, the demands made to the various groups. And if you have your Bible open, you, just, you can slide up there. I'm not going to read it for you. But Paul has already spoken to Titus to instruct older men. And then he's told Titus to instruct older women. And then he's told him to instruct younger men, and then younger women, and then slaves, servants. And it's not simply, we have to get this down, it's not simply that people in those various groups are doing good things. Now, Some of you, it's the first time that you're here. You won't remember that I said on several occasions that lost people can be good. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Lost people can be good. Lost people can do good things, now get this, as measured by themselves or if they compare themselves with other people. The rich young ruler, story in the Bible of his meeting Jesus is a classic illustration of that. He, he, he came up to Jesus and he addressed him as good teacher. And already Jesus could tell this was a young man who was a good man, but doing things to be approved by God. And so he challenged him, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and he is God. And so he asked him, what good things must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus challenged him. And basically, if if you summarize that whole thing and get to the heart of what Jesus is after, not just with a young man that lived long ago, but with every one of us, it's more than being good. It's more than doing good things. It is doing good godly things. It's being godly. And so you'll see that, that all throughout out this passage of Scripture, he's talking about godly lives. He's talking about good works that flow from the grace of God that have been revealed in His Word. Now, I think it's very, very important that we look at it. We're not going to know what these things are, how to live godly lives automatically, and that's why sound doctrine is important. It's never either sound doctrine or godly living. It's sound doctrine that flows into godly living. So if you look back at the first verse, he said, what does he say? He says, get back to the 
what it, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He ends it up, bookends to this entire passage of Scripture where he says, declare these things. You see, there are two opposite but equally deadly religions, religious thoughts that are out there today. Sometimes they even creep into our thinking, into our church. One of those on one side is the grace plus crowd. Grace plus good works. And that's what saves us. And that's a deadly error. But on the other side is the group of people who say, hey, since I have been saved by grace, then I get an out for how I want to live. I can live any way I want to. It's not required that I live in a godly manner. I can sin because, after all, I'm under grace. Those are deadly, deadly errors that the Apostle Paul is trying to help young Titus as a pastor correct in this church that he loves so much, all of the churches on the island of Crete. Now, let's walk through this. For the grace of God, this is the reason why every member of the Christian family can and should live the Christian life. We've said that. The grace of God is also, it's important for this time of year because the grace of God is what motivated the Father to send Jesus to the earth for our salvation. But write this down, grace doesn't save. There are people, whoa, whoa, what? Grace doesn't save? No. Faith doesn't save. Jesus saves. And so we go back to the things that are posted in these banners on our walls. Jesus saves, but he does, through, does so through an operation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. So what is grace? Let's get a definition up here. You've got a little bit of that, uh, virtually the same thing under the big truth of today's message in your outline. Here is what grace is. And, and there are lots of different ways we could add to, take away, but I'm trying to get something for you that you, you can, you can kind of get a handle on. What is grace when you see it mentioned in the Bible? What is God's grace? Grace is God's undeserved, we don't deserve it, and unmerited, we can do nothing to, to earn it, His favor. It's His unwarranted love shown to those, now get this, who not only don't deserve it, they deserve exactly the opposite. And then we've alluded to this by saying it was what motivated the Father to send His Son. It is God's initiative to save sinners who cannot lift a finger to save themselves. Why is this important? 
Because every other religion, you need to get this down, every other religion other than Christianity, and that, that is true biblical Christianity, every other religion is a system of human achievement, human performance, human accomplishment, something that you and I can do, no matter how small, but something that you and I can do to tip the scales and to earn God's favor and acceptance. In other words, His salvation. And, and you, have, you have to see, you have to realize what a radical message this is that the Bible says there is a God who does all the saving and He leaves nothing for man to claim as his contribution to gain God's favor. It was radical in the Protestant Reformation of the 1600s when the church at large, I mentioned this a second ago, taught that man, now get this, was saved by grace through faith. That's what the Roman Catholic church of the day taught, and no matter how slick some of the videos are that might say differently, that's what they still believe today, that we are saved, that man is saved by grace through faith. And a lot of people that, that are in Protestant churches say, well, that sounds good to me. What's the problem? The problem is they added things. It's God's grace through faith plus the sacraments, plus penance, plus other things that you and I might do. And so along came the reformers who just simply read the Bible and determined that the Bible said, no, it's not grace through faith plus anything else. The difference that the reformers added was one little word, alone. So what is the foundation? What's the foundation upon which your salvation and my salvation is based? It is the Scripture. Let's add a word to that because we are from that stream of Reformation. We believe that it is the Scripture alone. We need no other revelation, no other words of man, no other traditions of man, this is our foundation upon which our salvation rests, Scripture alone. What must I earn to be saved? What's the answer to that? Nothing. Salvation is by grace alone. What, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer to that? Nothing. Salvation is through faith alone. What or whom must I trust to be saved? Okay, add something to that. Christ alone. See, it's so subtle that someone will say, well, yeah, I believe it's Jesus Christ I must believe in. And then you start adding other things. Even such as going to church or tithing or being a member or doing this or doing that. No, it is Christ alone. 
then the last question is, well, what's the point? The point is, as you see, it's for the glory of God alone. Now, all of the solas that we, again, we have, you, you can, there's a visual to what I'm talking about right here. All of the solas are tied together, but the hallmark of Protestant theology is its commitment to the second sola, and that is sola gratia. We are saved by God's grace alone. If you've still got your Bible out or your smart device, phone, whatever, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're, we're going to just walk through this because of all of the passages in Scripture. By the way, I, I don't know how many years ago it was that I preached through the book of Ephesians. And so we, we tackled this. And it's always fun to go back to the book of Ephesians because it's such a wealth of good, strong biblical doctrine out of which we live those godly lives that we've been called to live. So we're going to walk through this and see what this passage, one of the best about God's grace and the doctrine of salvation and why it's by God's grace alone. So let's look at it. It's going to be up on the screen, but I want you to follow me because I'm going to ask questions so that we can see how marvelous, how wonderful God's grace is. As we here are the five solas, by the way, in case you didn't catch them on the wall. Let's go to Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3. I'm going to read through this. We're going to ask some questions. Here's the first question. What were you before God saved you? And I don't care if you were a four-year-old. Okay, a little bit more than that. But let's look and see what Paul says because there are a lot of people who would not give that answer. And so let's walk through and see what he says by reading in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. First thing, he says, And you were, what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, this describes the second thing that we were before we were saved. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of, what else were you besides being spiritually dead? You were disobedient. All of these start with a D. Do you see it? Spiritually dead. You were also disobedient, but it even goes deeper than that. Look at the next part. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So write down a third thing. Before you were saved, before I was saved, I was not only dead, and we were not only disobedient, we were also depraved. But there's, something, there, there's a fourth D word that goes with that. And let's read on. And we're by nature. That was our nature. It was who we were. Not just what we did. We did what we did because we were who we were. By nature, we were 
children of wrath, even as the rest. So we get to the end of the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and before Christ, I, 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 don't, I don't know how else I can say it, or maybe raise my voice, or pause, or tell a story, or this, this, if this sinks in, of going back and remembering what you were, kids, you listen to me, students, you listen to me too, before you were saved, you will walk out of this place with a new understanding of an appreciation for God's grace. Before you and I were saved, we were dead. We were disobedient. To one degree or another, we plumbed the depths of depravity, and we were doomed. And that's what it means to be, by nature, children of wrath. Why would Paul tell us this? Because he's just a colossal captain bring me down? Because he just wants to ruin our day and tell us that, oh, you know, you destroy your self-esteem. If you are not saved today, you are not neutral. You're in this condition. I don't care how old or young you are, how many times you've been to church or have not. This is truth. And so the question is, well, what do you did? What do you do? You, you do what you do because you are who we are. And we don't want to soften the reality that man is basically good and just misguided. And oh, so, so here's what we'll do. And there are a lot of preachers who will tell you basically to do this. Make a commitment. Turn over a new leaf. Start thinking more positively about yourself. Even ask for help. But I go back. Let me just ask a basic question. Before you were saved, were you sick or were you dead? So do you need help? You need a miracle. Before you were saved, were you drowning or were you drowned? Is that the past tense of drown? For those of you who've been around for a while, you've heard me share the story. I, there are some songs of our past and present that I love. There are some that I say, uh, let's correct that theology. One of those is, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I was raised on that song, very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. No, you weren't. You were dead. You were sunk. You were at the bottom of the ocean. The fish had eaten your... Well, anyway. You, you, were, you were dead. You didn't need a lifeline. I didn't need a lifeline. Something to help me be better. I needed a miracle. And by God's grace, that's what we got. 
You see, if you don't see yourself as dead, you don't need really a miracle. And God's grace is not really all that wonderful or amazing. I visited a lot of people in the hospital who were at death's door. And I've laid, even, even when they were no longer communicative, okay? And I have laid my hand on their hand when they were so close to death that literally even walking out the door, even right there they died. But their hand was still at least somewhat warm. There was animation. The skin was still... Even though they were so close, they were still alive. But I have also stood in many funerals and memorial services, and I've reached out and touched maybe sometimes the same hand. And it's totally different. Why? Because they were dead. No life. And, and I, I think Paul wants this to sink in. What were you before God saved you? Were you helpless or were you hopeless? Did you need help or did you need a miracle? And the miracle is called grace. Let's read on in Ephesians. We're going to read through verse 10 and just in two more bites, okay? What we are, this next part in verses 4 through 7, is what we are because of what He has done. Let me ask you a question. Are you religious or are you alive? Being religious is kind of like being good. And there are a lot of people that being religious is okay. And if you're religious, well, that's good enough. Well, no, you need to be alive. And so we just looked at what it meant to be dead and disobedient and depraved and doomed. Now let's look at the two most important words in this passage and maybe in all of Scripture, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I I don't know if this was your experience or is your experience, but it, it was certainly my experience before I became a Christian even as a child, and moving from death to life. Before I was saved, now please hear me, because there could be some people in this room who are in this condition right now. You don't realize it because you've been religious. You've gone to church, maybe ever so often, at least Christmas and Easter. Maybe that's why you're here today. You came to the brunch. It's not a bad thing, but it's a religious thing. You don't need religion. In fact, religion's not going to get you to heaven. Only being made alive in Christ will. But I can tell you the the difference before 
I was born again. Well, I was dead. So there was no hunger for the food of God's Word. Oh, I could read the stories, and I could, even as a child, I could tell you the stories of David and Goliath. I could tell you the Noah and the, the, the ark. I could tell you about Jonah and the big fish and all the rest of that, even Jesus dying on the cross. But there was no hunger for his word. Now, now let me just say this to you. If you're here today, and, and for a Christian, our experience is we're on a process of growing, and sometimes there are seasons where we just don't have that, that hunger, and then it comes back because there's always, if you are alive in Christ, there is a new hunger to know his word. And not perfect, and it's going to be up and down, and all of the rest of that. But why? Why is that true? Folks, because dead people aren't hungry, right? Alive people are. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of what? His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Before I was saved, no hunger. Now that I'm saved, a hunger. A hunger to know Him through His Word. An aching, even a longing. Do some of you know what I'm talking about? And that didn't come just from you. And it's not a religious activity. It's a desire to know Him. Before I was saved, I lived joyfully in my sins. And those don't have to be big sins. We classify them, don't we? It can be something, just that little niggling thing that just trips you up and traps you. And before I was saved, I joyfully ran to and wallowed in my sins. If I was called on the carpet by someone, that's not very religious because I even went to church during part of that time. Usually I would justify myself, compare myself with, with somebody else in the church who was doing the same thing or worse, right? And that was before I was saved, but when I was born again when I was made alive from death. I, I, I run from my sin. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I, I hate to admit it. I, I, I don't think I'm the only one here, but I hate to admit that there are times when I, when I, I sin. And, and sometimes those are, are things that nobody else is around. I might have a thought. I, I did yesterday as I was leaving Sam's. And this person on the opposite side did not yield at the green light. And I had a thought that was really ungodly about that guy. Before I was saved, or well, I was saved before I started driving, but if I had been unsaved, I would have said, well, he is. He is what I thought he was. And, 
And, and he deserves for me to think what, he think, what, what I think he is. But as a born-again believer, I realized, oh, God, I, 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 why do I do that? Well, you're in, Marty, you're in the process of sanctification. You're not yet what you want to be. You're more than what you used to be, but you're not what you want to be yet or should be. But you're running from it. You're not running to it. And that's one of the things that grace does. It helps us to run from our sin, to hate our sin. Instead of joyfully running to it and enjoying it and wallowing in it, we joyfully kill it and desire to live to God. There's a story about a, a man in a small town. It was years ago. And a, a tent revival came to town. This man was a, he was a reprobate. And his family knew it. And, and, and so he shows up at this revival and he gets saved. Now, they, you, that, that's a good word, saved. He got gloriously saved. Do you understand that? And his, his turnaround was immediate. So this tent revival was there for a couple of weeks, and one night they had asked this man who had been the reprobate, the town reprobate, to come and to share his testimony, and he was doing that in front of the people. And there was a guy in the back and a little girl. And the man was saying, as he heard this guy giving his testimony, it's a dream. It's just a dream. The little girl standing there was this man's daughter giving his testimony. And she was hearing this guy said, it's just a dream. It's just a dream. And she finally looked up at him and said, sir, if it's just a dream, please don't wake him up. Because there had been that change. He wasn't just religious he was becoming a follower of God. Now, verses 8 through 10 in Ephesians, again, this, this is just going back to, to support what we have started on about the appearing of the grace of God, and we're seeking to define it and bring it home to our hearts. Verses 8 through 10, and this is what Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you're saved, it's, it's by grace alone. By grace through faith that you have been saved. A lot of you know that when you ask me a question, I use my Dave Ramsey answer. You'll ask me, how am I doing? That's right. Lowell, you got it. I say, better than I deserve. Now, if it's somebody in church, they'll say, yep, you're right. But a lot of times people out of church, they don't, they don't know how to respond to that. Oh, no, you, don't, you don't really mean that. Better than you deserve. You're really a good guy. 
And in all that I've been saying, see, that, that is for a reason. It is to express the grace of God in my life. And a lot of people don't get it. If you do anything to deserve God, listen, if you do anything to deserve God's favor, it's not grace. It would be earned. It would be owed to you. Earned or deserved grace is an oxymoron. I was thinking about this this morning. I saw a, a news piece yesterday. Did anybody else say it? Uh, I, I don't know that I'll pronounce his name correctly. If you follow sports, you'll know who I'm talking about. Shoei Otani. Okay? All right, some of you who are not into it, but he, he's a baseball player, okay? He's been touted as probably the most skilled baseball player ever to live. I grew up with Mickey Mantle, so I, you know, that's going to be tough for me to swallow. But he just signed a contract. He's being paid more than any other sports figure, at least in this nation, maybe in the world, in history. $700 million contract for pitching and for hitting a ball. Now, is that grace or is it earned? <laughs> you hesitate. Well, okay, he earned it. And the Dodgers are probably going to make a lot of money if he stays healthy, a lot of money off of him. But I was just thinking, what if the management of the Dodgers, the owners of the Dodgers came to my house, knocked on my door and said, Marty, we're going to offer you a seven, why are you laughing? <laughs> you know why you're laughing, a $700 million contract. To play base, I used to play baseball when I was young. I don't think I could throw a ball halfway down the, the auditorium right now. I think I'd, I'd strike out. Now, if they offered me that contract, would it be earned or would it be grace? grace. Amen. <laughs> so don't do what a lot of religious people do. They default to the wages mentality, oh, I know I haven't been perfect, but I've done this. Or I, and this is the classic I mentioned a minute ago, I haven't been as bad as fill in the blank. Just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Which club are you in? The Pharisee? The tax collector? The Pharisee said, oh, I thank God I'm not like this guy. How many of well, sh I probably shouldn't ask how many are you in that club or how many of you are in the other club beating his breast and saying, woe unto me because I'm a sinner. I know what I deserve. Here's where a lot of people are. They're in another club. I'm glad I'm not like the people who are glad they're not like the guy in the story.
I've heard this question a lot from unbelievers. Well, believers too. Why doesn't God save everyone? And if you understand what I've just been sharing with you, that will never be your question again. The question you will have is, why would God save anyone? Biblically, what do we deserve if we're outside of Christ? Wrath, death, hell. And if God were really fair toward us, we would spend eternity in hell. But what we have seen is that the riches of God's mercy are poured out in Jesus Christ and we don't get what we deserve. Hell, we get God's riches and the abundance of His glorious grace that by simple faith ensures that we will spend eternity in heaven. We're saved not by our merit, but by God's mercy. We're saved not by our goodness, but by God's grace. We are saved not by what we endure, but, but why, what Christ endured for us. We are saved not by our doing, but by Christ dying. And from beginning to end, as we get further into this season, we will be talking more and more about that reality of God's amazing grace shown to sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you happen to be one of those that I was talking about a few moments ago, at best maybe you're religious, but you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, You've never savingly believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone? Then I would pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. That you would understand that you were created to glorify God, but you haven't. None of us has. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because of that we deserve His wrath. Jesus was born as a babe in a manger and grew, lived a perfect life, gave His life on Calvary's cross so that you and I might believe in Him by His death, burial, and resurrection, and we could have life everlasting. If you've never done that, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. If you're a believer in, you're a follower of Christ, I pray that your appreciation for that, your internalizing of, of what is doctrine, sound doctrine, your internalizing of that incredible reality of the grace of God would continue to transform you in so many ways. Father, I thank you and praise you for the wonder of your grace that we've been able to look at for a few moments. And I pray that we would get a better understanding of, a grasp, again, apprehending. But Father, without the internalizing of these truths, it's, it's all for naught. So I pray that today you would have planted seeds, perhaps, or maybe watered seeds that were already planted, 
And maybe even that someone would bow the knee to King Jesus and someone would trust in Christ alone and be saved. And for those of us who know you, because we've trusted in Christ, I pray that we would grow in our appreciation for the great grace that was shown, not only at the birth of your Son, but also Calvary's cross. Lord, help us to respond as we should. We know that we cannot without the empowering of your Holy Spirit, so we pray for that to happen and for Him to be present with us as individuals as we seek to respond to what you have told us from your Word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.